This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Praxis is proud to sponsor this episode of the podcast. Praxis is about living the life you want, living on your own terms, getting off the conveyor belt. What does that mean specifically? If you're a young person, high school, college age, you've kind of been taught that there's a conveyor belt. You sit down, you shut up, you obey the rules, you get good grades, and you'll be moved along and then eventually handed a ticket to a job and a house and two and a half kids and a bunch of debt. That's bull crap. You need to create your own life. You need to decide what you want. Look at the opportunities around us that are more plentiful than has ever existed in the history of mankind. And you need to get out and start exploring and experimenting. Stop doing things you hate. If you're bored in the classroom, if it's not bringing you any joy, get out. Engage with the world. Try some things. If you get accepted into practice, Praxis is a highly competitive, highly competitive program. But if you get accepted in, we will place you with an entrepreneur at a growing dynamic business where you'll be working 30 hours a week. At the same time, you'll be going through a series of professional development challenges to meet your goals that you've set out. You start the program and say, here's what I want at the end. Here are the tangible outcomes. I want a job offer. I want to launch an online business. I want to whatever it might be. We take that and use that as our measuring stick to decide whether we're doing our job. Our advisors work with you to reach those goals. They help you. They push you. They challenge you like a fitness trainer would. But ultimately, you're the one in the driver's seat. We provide you with an amazing curriculum, resources on everything from liberal arts topics like economics and history to business, entrepreneurship, life skills, and every, you know digital branding, building a website. It is intense, but it will change your life. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out. What is the Foundation for Economic Education? Besides being a sponsor of this, the Isaac Morehouse podcast, Fee is one of the leading, I would say the leading voices for clear economic thinking in the country today. And not just today, Fee's history is amazing. It was founded in 1946 as really the only prominent voice for the ideas of freedom, limited government, free markets, voluntary exchange, and as Leonard Reed, the founder, would say, anything that's peaceful. Uh, this was not an easy position to be in at the time when planned economies were the norm. And Fee was the home of such luminaries as Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman, and a great many other phenomenal thinkers, writers, communicators. It has been a bastion for the ideas of economic liberty through their magazine, The Freeman, their online resources at fee.org, and most important today, their in-person seminars for young people. If you are between the ages of 14 and 26, there is nothing like a fee seminar. Three days, usually at a great location somewhere around the country, Austin, Texas, Orange County, California, New Hampshire, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, and you're together with 50 or 100 other young people who want to be there and engage the ideas of economics and freedom. Check it out, fee.org slash seminars, and you too can join a heritage that includes some of the most amazing economic thinkers the world has ever known. FEE.org slash seminars. Tell them I sent you from the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. We are now entering part three of our beginner's guide to startups. Part one, we heard from Anthony Davies, uh, an entrepreneur, a founder of several different companies, uh, who's also an economist. Part two, we heard from Michael Gibson about what it's like from the investor side of the table. And part three today, we have Levi Morehouse. My brother is joining us and Levi was on a previous episode. He was on episode 12, talking a little bit about his story and um, we kind of riffed on several different things. 
And this time, because Levi was like leaning into the mic so much and it made the level so different, even though we live in the same city, uh, I made him do this over Skype so that we can just even things out. So we can't, the two of us in the same room together, it's a lot of ego and a lot of volume for a single microphone. Wouldn't you agree, Levi? Absolutely. I think this is the way to go. Good, good separation. Okay. So um, today, what I really want to focus on is that initial getting a business started and bootstrapping, if you're going the route of not seeking outside funding and kind of talking about what I would call almost a little bit more of a blue collar mindset or approach to startups, to entrepreneurship, not in any way limiting the vision or the bigness of the goal or the, the hopes of scaling really big, but in approaching it in a way that's maybe a little bit more um, hands-on and kind of you know, experimental and, and just getting started rather than more of the, okay, build a giant, perfect pitch deck, go raise a bunch of money. Um, a, a little bit of a different tack to it. And especially for those who may have a business model that doesn't require outside funding at all to not get caught up in this trendy shark tank world of you got to go pitch investors, pitch investors, pitch investors. Sometimes that's the worst thing to do um, or certainly not the best thing to do. So I want to talk about a lot of different stuff here um, and based a lot on just what you've learned from being a part of several businesses, starting several, and now having a very successful and fast growing company, uh, that you did bootstrap with very little, if really no outside funding, especially in the, the early stages. So that's kind of the setup for today. Is that a fair blue collar entrepreneurship? Are you comfortable with that categorization of your approach? Uh, yes. Yep. That, I think that, that captures things well. That's it. That's all you're going to give me, huh? Okay. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just used to, you know, getting a little more, uh, yeah, you know, let me, it is comfortable and let me tell you why, but you're just like, let's get to the point. No, the- no, no, it's yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you more. I'll, I'll, I'll you don't have to, if there's nothing more to give. Cause I got, no, no, blue collar is okay. I guess the point I was going to get to is that you don't always know that going in. So thinking about it in those terms, I don't know if that's the name I would call kind of how, how my business has evolved and my journey into entrepreneurship has evolved. But I guess looking back, you could certainly say that. Um, I don't know if I knew what I didn't know at the time. So it was just, I was just doing, I was just taking the next step. I knew the ultimate end goal and I, and I didn't know exactly how to get there. So I don't know if I would have called it that at the time. Um, but, but I think it, I think it covers it. It covers it well. I don't know if there's a better term, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah. so we'll go with it. So I want to start with, um, three questions and we'll take some time on each of these, um, to get going. The first is sort of, the first is really, should you start a business and what are some questions to answer there? And I know you've got a lot of questions to go through and I, and I want you to, I want you to talk us through, um, sort of the, the process of self-reflection for somebody wondering if they should start a business. Um, the second one is how important are in our episode with Aunt Davies, especially we talked a lot about sort of the documents you need to get started, your, your business plan, your go-to-market strategy, your, you know, uh, revenue model, all this stuff. How important is that stuff? Is it overrated? Are business plans not that big of a deal? Should you just start? Um, and then finally, and this one maybe you can answer first because it's a short one, is what is the, how do you know if what you're building is a startup versus a small business? And we, and we talked about, uh, we've used in, in the first um, part of this series, Paul Graham's definition of a startup, which is essentially a company designed to grow very rapidly and very large, not just you know, open a restaurant and it has a capacity of 50 patrons at any time. And your goal is just to kind of have it full as much as possible. A startup has uh, an, an ambition of something much, much larger. A major chunk of the market is the goal anyway. And how, the, how to sort of distinguish those two. And not that one is like morally superior or anything, but just knowing, are you trying to build a startup or are you trying to build a small business? And maybe what's the difference? Absolutely. Those are great questions. Love to dig into all of them. So why don't, you, why don't you answer the last one first? Cause I think it would be quicker. What, how do you know if what you're working on is a startup or is just a small business? And, um, you know, should you, does it matter? I think it matters a ton. It, it may be one of the biggest questions that you should be thinking about and answering. And if I look back at my experience, <clears throat> you know, I think I always wanted a startup, if you would, or what I'll call a scalable business. Okay. Um, startup insinuates it's it's brand new. I don't think it has to be that way from inception. Um, but at some point, 
I actually kind of break break the businesses down into three categories. Um, where, with the first one that that you could certainly be meshed with the small business, but is also is what it's it's very new today. It's always been around, but it's becoming more and more and more prevalent today. Is what I call a solopreneur or kind of a freelance entrepreneur, mm. someone who's really really figured out how to maximize the value of their time and more importantly, their skills, I guess. So this is like a dude who's, who's doing digital marketing, consulting, working, you know, 10 hours a week, he's got a bunch of clients and can live wherever he wants and is making good money type of thing. Absolutely. It could be anything. Typically it's done online. You know, it's typically project based where you've got a skill that typically big agencies have charged a three or four times markup on what it costs them to pay you to do. And now with all these marketplaces that exist, you know, for a variety of services, solopreneurs can be out and doing those things. But it could all could go all the way down to a guy that has a lawnmower and a snowplow on the front of his truck. Is that is that the same as a lifestyle business? You hear that term a lot. Nope. Uh, a lifestyle business is oftentimes a small business where the owner has worked it to a spot. And sometimes it starts that way. But usually I think it requires a lot of sweat equity for a few years but gotten into a spot where they're very comfortable. They're living a life where they're working the amount they want. Maybe that's not much at all. Mm. They're, they're making enough money to be very comfortable and they don't want to push more risk into expanding the team with a potential bad hire, taking on debt or investors to grow. They, they like where they've made it. So, so a, solopreneur, a, business. a solopreneur has to keep working to keep the money coming in. A lifestyle business has built a business that potentially they could do very little or no work um, and they'll make a, a decent living and maintain their lifestyle, but it's exactly. not, it's not growing to try to take over the world. Yep. Exactly. Those are my definitions of it. They could vary slightly, but that's, that's how I distinguish. Between. Okay. So a solopreneur is kind of that freelancer. It's somebody who's saying, I want to make, get paid on my value. And the better way to do that than going through an employer is to do that myself as a freelancer. And whether that's finding customers of their own or that's going through a marketplace, again, that there's many of these days, that person to me is, is absolutely on the rise. Um, and maybe it goes back to one question even before you get to that spot, and it would be, why are you not getting a job and being an employee for someone? And if you figure that out, these that can kind of lead you into what of these is, is optimal. Mm. And they all have different pros and cons. The solopreneur probably makes more money individually than a small business owner or a startup founder for maybe several years, maybe forever. Because again, there's very slim chance of failing when you're a solopreneur. You usually, again, if you're in something that people need, you oftentimes are pretty busy. The downside is you don't really free yourself up from, from putting in that time always. You know, you're getting paid for doing projects, not hopefully not just for hours, but for completing valuable projects. So you still have to be working to get paid typically. Um, and again, there's usually not any, you can't sell yourself. It's, there's not a liquidity or an exit event or something for someone else to come and take over. So it, there's pros and cons to all of these. Um, and again, we can get into as much or little of that as we want later in the discussion. So, so you would um, say you should almost start with, okay, do I want to work for another person? And if the answer to that is yes, you can, you can go down a different route that, uh, you know, discovering what kind of company you want to work for, how to make the most of it, et cetera. But if the answer is no, I don't, then you start to examine, do I want to be a solopreneur, a lifestyle business owner, or the third category, which is like a startup founder? Exactly. That's, okay. that's exactly what I would do. And even on that first step to go super broad and, and universal, it's just kind of how I like to think from as far back as possible. It ultimately comes to, in my life, how valuable, how important is my occupation, is my method of earning resources. And if it's secondary to a lot of other things, employment's probably the route to go. Mm. If you enjoy getting value and actual you know, utility out of earning resources and creating wealth for yourself, then you may want to consider entrepreneurship as a way to get there. Still not an answer. That doesn't mean you for sure do it. There's, you still may be able to love being an employee somewhere. But there's kind of that progression you almost run through. Um, and if you come to that spot of, yes, I think I want to not be an employee, I want to own something, then you get into those three categories. So how important is the idea? Because it sounds like by this process, 
you're starting with, do I want to work for someone? If no, okay, now I want to think about the pros and cons of different types of entrepreneurship as if the desire to be an entrepreneur comes first and then sort of picking uh, an idea or a service to sell or a business to start comes second. But I've heard a lot of people say the opposite, that you can't just be an entrepreneur. You've got to have a burning idea first. Do you think it has to go one way or the other? No, I think if you have the idea first, that's great. There's probably nothing better than having the idea and then deciding, do I want to be an entrepreneur for this idea? Because then I think you've eliminated some of the guesswork after that. Yeah. Or not guesswork, but the figuring things out after that. Where my experience was that I wasn't that creative. I, I knew at a very early age I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I was going to work hard and research and study and figure it out and do all these things, but I didn't know what that product or service that I was going to bring to the to the world was going to be. And that took me a lot of effort and trial to kind of land on what is ultimately something I feel is just amazingly me and what I should be doing. Um, so it can definitely go either way. There's nothing wrong with having the idea first, um, but there's also, I think that's, I think that's the, uh, I'd say it's more common to, to kind of have the sense that you want to be an entrepreneur and not have that perfect idea. Yeah. Which, which is probably evidenced by the fact that most founders of companies have done multiple different companies. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So, so are there, there are any other, um, are there any other questions you need to ask yourself before you even get started trying to build your business? Yeah. So I think if you decide, I, I don't think I want to be an employee. I think I want to be an entrepreneur. Then I think you want to say, why, why do I want to be an entrepreneur? And there's a million different reasons. I, I kind of break it into a, a handful of categories. One is freedom, which is kind of the ability to spend your time doing what you want to spend your time doing. Uh, so that's breaking from the constraints of the, the nine to five or even the more flexible work environments, which is not having those constraints on yourself. Second is uh, wealth creation, you know, how, how much money you want to make. Um, and then third is this idea of, of building something for the world. Again, that could be your idea that it just needs this product. Or you could be driven to have, I want, you know, thousands of people or hundreds of people or tens of people that work for me to just have a better life because of me or, you know, whatever it is, your service to who you're serving is something you really are passionate about and, and you want them to be better off. So it could be that actual idea of what your business does just drives you. Um, and so it's kind of a combination of those things that are going to help you. And the reason I'm getting into all those details is going to help you decide do I want to be a solopreneur? Do I want to be a small business or do I want to be a startup or a scaling business? Are there bad reasons to try to be an entrepreneur? I don't think so. I think you could, there would be argument on that. I think a lot of people say if you're doing it for the money, you're going to fail. You have to do it for your, because you're passionate about it. And I think largely that's true, but I don't think it's exclusively true. I'm pretty sure I know some people that really love money and they're really good at being entrepreneurs because of it. And I'm not sure they love, they completely love what they're doing. And there's, I don't think there's anything yeah. wrong with that. They're still yeah, providing there, great value. There might so, be a, a question of uh, the the reason you're doing something might have an impact on your happiness on some deep level, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can't be successful. I mean, I can think of people who are extremely successful at, say, uh, a sport um, even though they're very unhappy and the reason they're successful is because, you know, their parents forced them to do it from age four and they became a phenom. So it, maybe success and happiness, um, might have different answers to that question of whether there are bad reasons. Absolutely. So success can happen either way. I, I can't project or try to decide if people are happy. I can only gauge success, you know, from personally. So I don't have enough data to say there's bad reasons. Yeah. I think if you're pretty sure, I guess one bad reason would be just because, it's popular or trendy, you know? So that is one thing that I feel like entrepreneurship right now is kind of trendy. Um, it's pop culture loves it. Entrepreneurs are kind of rock stars these days. So just think a little deeper than the fact that it's a cool thing to say. I do. Yeah. It's a cool thing to throw in my business card. If you do it cause um, you want to drive a segue around the office, it might not be a good, good. It may not again. <laughs> I, I won't say that for sure, but I, in general, I think you want to have it be driven by the desire for the, the freedom the money that comes with it, the, the, the idea you're passionate about. Mm. And probably that is the most important is to have something you're passionate about. And it doesn't have to be the idea of what you're selling. It could be the idea of having this enterprise that you've helped create. 
be able to look at and feel proud of or what, you know, but something you're passionate about beyond just the freedom and the money. Cause those two things are you, oftentimes you're sacrificing both of those or some of those at any given time to kind of get somewhere with your business. Uh, so if you've, if you've asked these questions and you've identified one or more of those reasons and you know that because you want the freedom or you just love to build things or you have a specific idea that you just have to, to try out, um, and you say, yeah, I want to do this. I want to be an entrepreneur. And let's say you've chosen, let's say you want to go the startup route. You want to build something that grows, something that's, that's, you know, take over the world level ambitions. What do you do next? Do you need to write a business plan and, uh, write a, you know, uh, financial projections and all this kind of formal stuff that we we've talked about before? No, I don't think you do. It, again, it depends. So if you go, if you're convinced that you want to build it, that you want to be a startup, then you may want to do that sooner than the other two routes. Hmm. My so thing is, so I'm a solopreneur sure. in a lifestyle business probably doesn't need all the, all that sort of business in planning. Most businesses, I'd say 95% of businesses, because even if you think you want to be a startup, most businesses aren't cut out to be a startup. Hmm. There's very, very, very few business ideas mixed with incredible execution and market timing that are actually going to scale like the startups we all think of. In most cases, they don't do that. In some cases, they completely fail, in which case you can try again or do something else. But a lot of times, they just kind of settle into that middle ground where they're kind of a small business. Um, so, it, But with a lot less equity for the owner and some different things. So to, to get to that state of I want to be a startup, if you're positive of it and your idea is completely a scalable business and a startup idea, Again, we could spend a lot of time talking about that as well, but I don't think that's the point of this discussion. Um, then, then maybe you do go and you you put the whole plan together and you forecast out the next several years and you really think about the next few steps and you and you really go that route. Um, I, I'm not saying don't do that, but for 95% of businesses, I think the first thing you want to figure out is do people want what I'm trying to do and go get some sales get people to pay you to do something that to me is just is sometimes overlooked it's so simple but again in this in this day and age of of everyone thinking in startup culture mindset it almost leaves behind is there a customer do they want what i have what do they want to pay for what i have <laughs> so many great businesses can think about that later but again i think those are the the edge cases that we hear about you know those are those are the exception they're not the rule um, so oftentimes I think reverse engineering that the way that in my mind, again, maybe I'm just a practical guy that thinks this way, but find a customer that, that wants what it is you're trying to do and figure out what they're willing to pay for it. And then can you make the economics work off of that? So be thinking about the plan, have it in mind. Don't, don't not think about it, but I wouldn't spend hours and days and weeks like can happen developing your plan. Sometimes actually doing business will help that actually accelerate that process. At some point, you'll probably get to that. If you don't want to be a solopreneur, you're going to at some point want the business plans and, and things like that. And they may not have to be super formal, you know, what you learned in business school or whatnot. But but having a plan is not a bad thing. Yeah. But I think execution, uh, good execution, doing deals for most small businesses trumps the perfect plan in my mind. You know, I almost think a business plan or a pitch deck is equally, if not more valuable as a way to better think about and understand your own business that's already well underway than it is a thing to plan out what your business is going to be. You know, I think there's a, it's like the field of dreams fallacy, right? Like if you build it, they will come. I mean, you see this in everything. You see it even with restaurants, you know, the, the restaurant that has this amazing hip trendy granite countertops and all this stuff. And they've put everything and they've planned it all out and they've been whiteboarding it and they've, and they're all excited and then they build the whole thing and then it sits there and nobody comes versus the guy who goes out and starts selling a, you know, special type of uh, taco or something. Uh, and a lot of people like it. So he gets a bigger store and a lot of people like it. And then he figures out how to do this, that and the other thing. And then he goes and builds his dream kitchen and his dream. You know what I mean? There's a completely, completely agree. And again, I, maybe I'm biased because in my experience, uh, in my business in particular, started out, I, I, I quit what I was doing and it was, I had a family uh, and a baby on the way, uh, my third child on the way. So I just needed to make money. So I didn't really have any time. I was working, you know, 90 to a hundred hours a week trying to make money. I had no time to think about a plan. 
I'm not saying that's the best way to go, and I'm not saying it's the way everyone should do it. It's certainly a way, and it ended up it ended up working out. But ultimately, I just had to get paid, and then try to get paid and have some helpers and whatever. And we actually, you know, long story short, it was five years of of doing our business and actually having a pretty good sized team before me and my leadership team stepped back and said, "What's our what's our true mission?" You know, kind of had it in our head. What's our yeah. mission? What are our core values? What are our ultimate goals and objectives? How big do we want to get? And I wish I'd done that sooner. So I'm, that's partly a case of, of I did it wrong. I waited too long. But on the flip side, we knew so much more about our customers, yes. our service, what we did well, what we didn't do well, that we made super efficient decisions on that stuff. And the last three years, we've had those things in place, and they haven't wavered an ounce. Nothing's challenged or questioned our goals, our mission, our core values, because they were already who we were. We were just, we took the time, we took a weekend finally to to spend a few days together at a retreat and do it. Um, and if we'd done that early, I think they would have changed and shifted a lot and we would have put a lot of time into that. Yeah. Again, I probably wish I would have done it sooner, but I don't think you have to do it first. You know, I think it's getting some level of traction before you plan everything out is really a valuable thing. Again, for many businesses, again, if your idea is so big and so revolutionary that you can't waste any time, then a lot of this changes. But I think for the majority of businesses is what I'll mostly be talking about. Today. Especially if you're that type who's starting because you want to be an entrepreneur more than because you have a really specific idea. There's a lot more Great that you point. just have to figure Great. out. Sure. Well, so with you, you actually went through this progression when you left your job as an employee and you'd kind of been in and out of being an employee and you'd been sort of an entrepreneur on the side as well. So it wasn't like it was a complete lifestyle change, but you, you left being an employee and you became a solopreneur and then that became basically a lifestyle business. And then that has become essentially a startup. When you left from the get-go, was your goal startup or was it just be your own boss somehow? Did you know that you wanted to make that progression and build something more than solopreneur or lifestyle business or did it just sort of happen? Yeah, so, and just to, not to be, not to split hairs, but I would call, I'd call it a small business, not a lifestyle business. Okay. A lifestyle business is kind of if you get your small business to this awesome point where it becomes just a really, you have a really great lifestyle. Okay. Most of the time, a small business is a horrible lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> that is very so, true. Do you know what I'm saying? The difference there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Uh, so, so I didn't, I, I never had what I would consider a lifestyle business because it was when I was in small business phase and, and it, it was brutal. It was a grind. I absolutely had in mind from the get-go that I wanted to be a scaling large business. And I think most businesses are going to go through that progression that, again, don't have that world-class idea that, that they want to just plan and fund and build a huge team from day one and give up some equity or take on a huge amount of debt or something like that. That's the typical model of a startup that's ready to scale immediately. I think there's many, many businesses out there, though, that can get to a very large size by kind of going through that progression if they don't quite know all the pieces of that plan. Um, so, so I absolutely knew that, and that informed my decisions every step along the way. I never made much money as a solopreneur because I was pouring it into becoming a small business and getting the right tools, the right software, the right help, the right team the right customers, you know, so I was pouring all that money back in where a solopreneur can just say, wow, I'm making pretty killer money for every hour I work. Let me keep it. Or the person that wants to be bigger says, I want to be bigger. I want to pour this and grow as fast as I can. Mm. When you're in that small business world, if your ultimate goal in there is to become a lifestyle business, again, you can grow a little slower. You can spend a few years developing a team member that's going to take four or five years to grow into that role where they can assume a lot of responsibility for you. Where if instead you want to be that scalable business or that startup, you need people that are a little closer to developed already, which again means you're going to pay yourself less. You're going to be further from living that lifestyle. You're going to be working a lot harder because you can't hire that person until you can afford them and whatnot. So I think knowing what your goal is set on is really, really helpful. I think if you go in without even thinking about it, just wanting the freedom or the money, but not knowing exactly where you want to end up in terms of, do I want this great? solopreneur business? Do I want a great small business? Or do I ultimately want this fast growing, scaling startup um, is really going to inform your decisions all along the way. So how do you start with no money? How do you bootstrap it? And a related question, 
Should you cut your lifeline? Will that make you better and sharper? Should you, should you quit your job altogether so that you have to make money quickly or should you sort of build it on the side slowly? Sure. So that's, yeah, that's a great, a great, excellent question. And I kind of laid this out as I was thinking about this talk ahead of time, the way I think to me, there's essentially four ways to fund your business idea. The first is by being employed or having a spouse or someone that's employed that can support you. So you literally don't need sales or debt or equity. You can start your idea without the idea itself raising capital. Um, so you can fund it with another job. You can do it on the side or whatnot. Um, that can be really tough. That can that can be a great solution for a short period of time. Um, I think it's a really hard one to do for an extended period of time, um, but it's but but it works. Second is to fund it with sales, which means you grow as fast as you can sell and pay for growth. Um, so you sell, you hire more people, you sell, you do other things. So again, let's we'll kind of shift the focus now to saying we all want to be this scalable business. Yeah. But instead of which again, I think there's plenty of content on and I think some of your other talks in this series are about how do you raise that 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 money quickly because you have that great idea you know you want a scalable startup business how do you raise the money and fund it so I'm not going to spend much time on that I'm going to kind of talk I think this is what you want me to do on the alternative yeah methods and again largely because that's kind of the direction we took um, for the first six years of my business was just purely bootstrapping it through and 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 growing at a really really for a small business, a very fast rate all along the way. Hmm. Um, so you can start it by being employed, by getting paid somewhere else and just giving the business that time essentially. Uh, second is you fund it with sales. And then the, the third option is you can, you can use debt. And that can be anything from a credit card, a personal loan, a loan from a friend or family member, an S, a loan from the SBA, the, you know, the Small Business Administration that backs loans from local banks or, or other commercial banks, um, real estate loans, you know, depending on what you're getting into. So any kind of debt where it's you get money to do something for your business and you have to pay it back. And then the last option is equity, of which there's a lot of different ways to go about an equity investment. Again, I won't spend much time on that. Yeah, we'll hit, we'll, we'll uh, hit that one pretty hard uh, in the next one as well. So. Excellent. So, so the first two is kind of what I would be looking at in terms of saying, okay, for most businesses, a lot of businesses aren't fundable by equity and debt is actually really hard to come across these days. If you want more than what a personal credit card line can give you, um, it's small business lending is, is really in a tough spot right now. Um, regulatory environment, whatever banking's just having a hard time. They're not, they're not real interested in funding small business ideas. So, if you can get debt, debt can be pretty good if you really believe in your plan. I'm not opposed to it, but just be very smart with it and completely understand what you're getting into. But the the surefire way to be able to grow, the only downside of growing based on sales is, is that it can be hard and sometimes it's slow. You're going to need to understand your business, your your margins. How much you need to sell to get the next person or to buy the next thing that's going to help your business, et cetera, et cetera. But so if you've sales, got a sales cycle of, let's say it takes you six months to sell a new customer, um, but that customer is a really valuable, you know, whatever, it's a $50,000 sale or something, and you know the market's out there, and if you had 20 salespeople right now, your company could be huge, but if you're going this way, you can't afford to pay 20 people for six months until they make that first sale. Exactly. Exactly. So it's it, it limits your growth in, in almost every business. Scaling it without debt or equity is going to limit the the rate you can grow. But the flip side of that is, again, most businesses to me aren't unlimited. It's not just plug in a formula and they grow at a super fast rate. <laughs> you have to figure things out in most businesses. So having twenty sales guys may not help you. It's going to be, it's going to be a less efficient for five years. Yeah. It's going to be a less and we grew efficient. Pretty fast. We could have grown faster with two or three, but not nearly as efficiently. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting dilemma there, but it's just most businesses aren't formulaic. It's, it's kind of that formulaic is where you should go raise equity though. That's, that's the whole point when, when it's a formula, that's when maybe you do go scale it really fast and raise some venture capital or something because it can be, it can be, you can just run those numbers very few businesses ever get to that spot in my opinion. Yeah. Figuring that out, you know, figuring out those efficiencies. I mean, I think any business in its first couple of years, 
if it had a million dollars, it would absolutely spend a million dollars and it would generate some returns, but it would probably be like way, way less efficient than if five years later, you know what I mean? Cause you just don't know. Absolutely. So you got to draw efficient. the line somewhere in between there and, and figure out when do I give up efficiency to keep growing? If your ultimate goal is to be that scalable business and when do I, I take the lessons? So I'm not pushing on, I never do that, you know, never, never be a little less efficient and grow a little faster and learn the lessons that way, where it's a little more costly in terms of money or equity that you're giving up. Um, but at the same time, you can learn a lot the other direction as well. So do you think going, funding it through a salary from another job or a spouse's salary, um, do you think that in some ways can make it a little harder because, you know, it's like the scene in uh, the dark Knight rises, right? He had to, he had to climb without the safety rope. Otherwise he couldn't make the jump. Does, does that fallback take the edge away a little bit? It, for me, it does. For me, it, it, it did. And it would, um, I think it's a personality thing. I, I would think for the majority of people, yes. Sometimes the, you know, necessity can be the mother of invention or, you know, whatever term you want to use, whatever, you know, little catchphrase. That's why but, trust fund kids aren't, aren't all out there starting businesses because they don't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes being on the edge or facing down something really scary makes you do the best things. And, and I know when you're out of your comfort zone and you're pushing, it definitely makes, it just puts you to that little extra level up. I'm not saying you can't do it without that. You know, some people can, it's just, I think for the majority of people, having that hanging out there is going to push success a little faster. So having more risk involved is going to generate a better outcome. I, I know for me personally, when I, when I started Praxis, the first six months from when I got the idea and was kind of putting things together, getting the website up and all that stuff, um, I was doing it on the side and I was working elsewhere. I had a great job that I loved. And, and I told myself two things. Uh, I'll do this as a side gig until one of two things happens. Either one, I start to do less than I'm capable of. I start to slack in my job and not perform. My, my standard was always, you know, be, be the best person in my job or as, as good as I could, you know, be, be, do better than I did last year. It blow everyone's expectations away. If I start to slack there because of it, um, I don't want to do them wrong. Or if it, if I can see visibly how it's holding back the growth of what I'm trying to get started. And so there was about a six month period where it worked pretty well. And then it got to a point where I could have kept doing it on the side. Um, but I just knew that I could grow it a lot faster if I just cut that lifeline and forced myself into a position where I had to start making it work. Um, and so it was a, it was a slower transition. It wasn't just like quit immediately day one and say, now what? Absolutely. And I, and I think in all, in all those four, and again, it's hard talking, you know, when, when they've got a list to, to keep talking through. But if you look in order of, we, we can put a list up on the show notes of these. Four. Yeah, perfect. So, so the list would be, you know, living off of employment, whether it's your own or, or someone, you know, in your family that's helping support you living off of your business's sales, taking debt or taking equity, typically in that order, the further down that you go, the faster you can grow. So to your point, you knew that you either had to take on sales, debt or equity to get out of trying to live off employment because it was slowing you down. All those are going to slow you down. The question is, is how much is it really slowing me down? And is there a lesson in this stage I can learn before I move to the next one that gets a little harder and a little bit more is on the line to, to be learned and, and, and how fast do I want to get to that next stage or if ever, you know, again, sometimes you can go, you could stay at any one of those four spots and still have a great business. It depends on what your ultimate objective is. So how do you decide what, if you're one of these people who's decided you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to do the, the growing, you know, the massive growth potential type of company, and you've decided which, which of the types of ways you're going to fund it, whether it's going to be on the side or, you know, you're going to fund it through sales or whatever else, but you still don't have that really specific, clear idea. How do you decide what kind of business to start? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so you know, on one side, I think you try something that you don't think you'll hate or be bad at. <laughs> if you're really just stuck, you know, if you don't have something that makes sense, you try something that you think you're kind of good at compared to the, the average person and, and, and you, you kind of enjoy. And that's, 
that would be to me a way to do it. I think, I, and again, I got to hear by kind of going through a progression of different things that I tried. I tried some real estate. I tried starting some businesses in a couple different industries that I ended up realizing I wasn't super passionate about. They're great businesses. It's just, it wasn't, it wasn't me. And I found that out by trying it. So I learned, so that's going to be, again, my bias showing a little bit is that, is that I learned by trying things and learning a few that I didn't like and hitting something that I loved and loved it even more and more and more as I saw what it could become. So that worked for me. I think one thing I would say I pretty much would recommend to anyone is, is don't wait forever for the perfect idea because it may never come. A lot of times it won't until you start experiencing things. And you might riff off of what you're experiencing. You might say, wow, I, I thought I wanted to consult on this and I realized that I would actually love to develop software for this or you know, or whatever that might be. You could you could certainly shift a little bit within what you're doing, or you might say, I just learned that I absolutely hate that, and I don't want to do anything like that ever again. And that's going to kind of pare down what it might be that you ultimately want to do. Hmm. So to me, trying something is a great way to go. You know, there's um, a lot of different ways that I've heard this expressed, but it, but I, I think there's definitely some truth to it when it comes to trying to figure out what you should do, uh, what kind of business you should start, that you look for intersections where... Um, you have an intersection of maybe two separate things that, you know, there are a lot of people that let's say know how to do sales. And there is a lot of, a lot of people that are really into, uh, you know, t model train collections. And you are a person that has an intersection of these two things. Um, and maybe you see a gap that, you know, the model train collectors who have all the best stuff are terrible at sales and they're not getting it out there. Right. And anywhere you have an intersection of sort of two different uh, whether it's industries, skill sets, areas of interest, those intersections are the thing that are most likely to make you the most unique and looking for kind of those, those, those intersections. I mean, in your case, I, I think it's that small business and accounting, you know, you're good at accounting. Uh, you know, a lot of small business people, you understand their needs. And that intersection is where you found that, that sweet spot for yourself. Yeah, I think that's a great a great way to look at it. Uh, another thing, as as you're talking, that maybe maybe valuable to to consider as well is, as I look back, I I always loved doing my personal finances or or the small business I worked with finances and putting it into the software that existed. You're a sick in, sick man. Quick in or whatever. But honestly, to, to in 100% honesty, I thought everyone loved doing that, and there would be no value in doing it for someone. You know, because I thought if anyone had the time, they would love to do this. So one of the big realizations to me was the things you love and are good at, a lot of other people probably don't love and aren't good at. And that's where, to me, the real light came on was like, wow, this thing I love to do as like a hobby is actually super valuable to people. And that idea, you know, was a that was a solopreneur idea, which we could evolve again as the light came on. I started testing it. It was like, wow, there's a huge market for this. And this can ultimately become a scalable business by doing it at scale and putting software around it, all kinds of cool things. But it started literally with that realization that I don't have to do some, a business that already exists. I don't have to go do something that I just think I could probably be as good as somebody else at because I know there's a market for it. But sometimes something you love to do, you know, and you have to figure out how to monetize it and what will somebody pay for it and all that. Um, but in my case, it was, yeah, all small businesses want a really cool way to understand their business finances with great reporting and understanding of what that means and how it pertains to them. And that was stuff that I had done for myself and, again, for some family businesses and people I knew just for fun. Like, I yeah. thought it was a really fun thing to do. So maybe just open your mind to things you love to do. Are you uniquely better at it than most people? And if so, is that valuable to people if someone was to do it for them? Well, and this is a really good exercise to ask people who know you well to say, what is one thing that I do uniquely well that very few other people do well that I'm really, really good at? And you actually might be surprised. I love that idea. Because what you said, this is this is actually the flip side of the what's called the Dunn-Loring effect, which is most people know the Dunn-Loring effect from it's people who are uh, have very little knowledge in an area tend to dramatically overestimate how much knowledge they have in that area. So if you know, if, <laughs> if you know nothing about, you know, astrophysics, you tend to be more confident in your beliefs about the, the way that the earth rotates around the sun than people who actually know more about that area. Sure. But the flip side of the Dunloring effect is that people who know a lot about an area tend to dramatically underestimate how much they know relative to the population. So things that come very, very easy for you, you assume 
come easy for everyone. You're not aware of just how unique you might be in that area. You might think there's nothing valuable about the fact that I'm really good at doing this because it's easy. Anyone can do it. I've never struggled with it. It can't be that hard. But often the things that you never struggle with that come easy to you are really valuable because you underestimate how much they are a pain in the butt for other people. I love it. Yep. I think that, I think that I would agree with that completely. Okay. So, um, so you're, you're going through this process and you're, you're kind of trying to pick, uh, I want to give you a, um, I want to give you, give me your take on this because you did this a little bit with your business and it's kind of what you talked about. Don't wait to the perfect idea, kind of get started. It's a little messy as you go, you'll sort of adapt and the, the trendy lean startup lingo is like iterate and pivot. You know, you start with one model and you test it on a small scale and then you sort of pivot to a new model. Uh, Peter Thiel sort of pokes fun at that in zero to one. He, he says, you know, you can't just go in with this indefinite optimism. Like we'll just do anything and it will work. And then we'll just listen to the market and adjust to whatever they're telling us. Is there some, is there some line at which that goes too far? We are like, let's just start selling anything and then we'll just adapt and see what works. Do you need to have some, some binding constraint that says, okay, now we're too far afield or, or now I'm not clear enough. I can't just go and start a business that doesn't have any products that make sense yet because I I'll just adapt or I'll pivot. How do you balance those two things? Being flexible yet having clarity and focus. Yeah. You want to have definite clarity and focus, but maybe, but again, depending on where you want to end up and how fast you want to get there, you may want to be a little bit more flexible in those two stages of solopreneur or small business in terms of just making some money, making things happen to truly scale. And then zero to one, I think the whole premise is that you're going from zero to one, not one to something else. So it's not something that already exists. Most, I think small businesses aren't truly that revolutionary that they're going from zero to one. Um, the ones that are, he's, he's spot on. He's absolutely spot on. You've got power laws. There's so many things that play into that truly super fast growth startup. But for a lot of businesses, you do want to bear some of those principles in mind though. Like one of my biggest regrets is how flexible I was early on and how I took every sale I could get my hands on at the expense of, of the efficient sales that in the end of the day, the opportunity cost, even though it was it had a margin, a positive margin, it wasn't what it needed to be to get me to that scalable business. Why, why, were, so you so, of, why were you so flexible early on? Well, because you knew that was a dollar coming in. Somebody was ready to pay you. And I did, it, it all comes down to, and I just answered this question a few weeks ago in another discussion, and it was the first time I'd really thought about it, but it comes down to the confidence you have in your idea. And that probably influences even the whole thing of quitting your job, funding yourself on sales, funding on debt, funding on equity. The confidence in your idea, the confidence in yourself. I'll go all the way down to debt in confidence just purely in myself. I know I'll figure out how to sell. I know I'll pay back the debt. I know I can quit my job. But equity is where I need confidence in the in, in the concept and the idea in addition to myself. Um, so when you get to the, when you get both of those, you maybe just go all the way and you go scalable right away. You lay out that perfect plan. But until you have that confidence, so early on I didn't have the confidence in what I was doing. I knew I could provide value to a customer. So if they were willing to buy it from me, I knew I could have figured it out and I knew I could work all night if I had to to make it happen and still try to sell to another customer the next day. So I was still moving towards this big scalable business. I didn't give enough credence to the fact that working all night was going to slow me down a little bit in how fast I could get there. You know, it was yeah. so so it, it, we moved forward. We were growing. We were moving towards that ultimate objective that was always very clear, but it wasn't the fastest, easiest route there. And I'll boil it down to confidence that I didn't have necessarily have confidence that the perfect customer would be there in the near future if I said no to the not quite perfect customer in the present. And you ended so up I having to yes and do both. And then we had, you know, so we've had to change. We we, we never pivoted. We've evolved. But you had to shed customers. Yeah. So in that evolution, sorry. we had to shed some customers that were great customers. They just didn't fit us being a scalable business, which we're absolutely committed to. So as we gained more confidence, we did some of that um, into the point where we finally did that all the way. And that was included some 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 of the team members and, and customers that, that were great fits along the way. But in the scalable model, it was just a slightly different business than we had been throughout the way. I made a lot of decisions where I said no to short-term things. So I'm not saying I never did. I didn't just take everything. The first six months I probably did. The first year I might have taken everything. But over 
the first five and a half years of the business that evolved down to where finally, about two years ago, we drew the line in the sand and said, never again, we're only doing the things we want and made some really hard decisions. We had slowly gotten there along the way where we said no to a lot of great short-term opportunities that didn't ultimately serve the long-term. So it was slowly building confidence is how I look at it. Where again, about two years ago, I was like, wow, this thing's just unlimited potential. There's millions of perfect customers out there. Hardest thing is to you know get ready so we can deal with all of them and in, and we're getting in front of all of them. And so it's very very exciting. It took me several years to get that level of confidence where I could just go all in without flexing at all. Hmm. So I think Peter Thiel's point is if you have that great idea and you know you can execute it and you're confident in that idea, go all in immediately. I wish I could have. Yeah. I didn't. It took me the years to learn the lessons to be that confident in the idea I had. And I think maybe if you're a if you're a venture backed uh, company going in and just being like, Hey, we'll figure it out as we go. Just give them, give us a bunch of money is, is probably less, less valuable than if you're bootstrapping it. And you're like, I've got confidence in myself that I can figure it out. Those might be two different scenarios. They are. And that's the thing in venture back companies. I don't know the specifics, but the success rate is pretty low. The complete failure rate is pretty high, mm. which is great. That's what the venture capitalists want. They just need a few that go crazy. And that's, again, that's what Peter Thiel's talking about. So he's saying go all in or go nothing where I was, I was absolutely the mindset. I'm going to win no matter what. There's no ch- losing is not an option. There's zero chance we ever lose. Where'd you get that kind of swagger? I don't know, man. <laughs> it came. It came throughout. Probably because I, you, I didn't have it when I was a kid. You know what? So I'm going to tell you right now. You're welcome. It's because I was your younger brother and I let you beat me in basketball all the time. <laughs> so you thought you were capable of winning everything. I won arm wrestling. Yeah, being the only. Yeah, you brother, beat me man. in pretty much everything. Maybe it came. Until we got, yeah, until we got to the age where, you know, we were too polite to engage in that kind of stuff. Who knows? Maybe. (laughs) Um, so I want to ask you in, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take too much more of your time here in the next 10 minutes ish. Um, but I want to ask you about how hard is it to go from, so you're, you're out there doing it by yourself, you're servicing clients, you're building the business. And then maybe you get, you know, you hire on a couple employees, somebody to assist you with some stuff, uh, maybe somebody to help you with some sales, but all of that, that's very, very different than building a scalable business where you literally have to delegate everything. And it's all the stuff that you used to do, that you started doing. And you know, I can serve the clients well. I know how to do it. I know this client. I got them. I started their account. How do you delegate that and hand that off without stressing about it, without micromanaging, without you know, going from being a, the person who's sort of the technician to being a manager and to being a CEO and an entrepreneur, how, how do you make that transition? I, and Davey said he thinks very few people are both an entrepreneur and a manager, somebody who knows how to build something versus someone who knows how to run something. How do you play both of those roles and was that difficult? It's, it is difficult. Um, and I think if you ask most of my employees, they would say I'm, I'm a better entrepreneur than manager. <laughs> <laughs> Although somehow we managed it along the way, but I'm sure there's some scars on some of my people due to it. Um, so, so I guess to, to, to zero back to the question specifically, um, it's tough to do if you, it goes back to that initial piece though, where do you want to end up? So I always knew I wanted to end up being a fast, scalable business. I just didn't have the idea quite right to, to go there immediately. So I kind of went through the progression. But in doing that, I always wanted to delegate as much as I could as quickly as possible. Now, that wasn't very quick. As I mentioned, it took about five and a half years till I was delegated out of most things. And even then, it's literally been in the last six months. You know, we've been doing this almost eight years. In the last six months where I think I'm truly leading and leading the company, not managing different pieces of it. I'm, most, I'm out of 99.9% of the managing of things, which took me a long time to get there. Um, so it was a long transition, but I always knew I wanted it. And I knew my objective, again, it's being very clear on your objective is huge because you can be a solopreneur with one great customer that makes you two, three, four times what you make as an employee and you work very little. That can be a very comfortable life. So, But but if you know for sure you want to be a small business where you have many customers and a team and you don't necessarily have to work on that client, then, then you're going to risk losing that customer to get the team in place and to make it happen. And you may, it may take you a while to get to that spot. You may micromanage the account for a long, long time, but, but ultimately, you know, you have to delegate that. And if you want to be a scalable business, 
you have to risk whole chunks of customers going because at some point you have to say, I trust this person to sell. If they can't sell new businesses, we can't be a scalable business. I can't be the only sales guy. At some point, this person has to be able to take care of the customer. If they can't take care of the customer, I have to take care of every customer. We're not a scalable business. It's 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 not the ultimate objective. But if you're a small business, again, you can you can change that mindset. If if where you want to end very much influences how much you delegate, how quickly you delegate. Um, so I always enjoyed delegating. Again, as my team, I might have micromanaged. I'm not saying I was perfect at it, but I always very much wanted to delegate things and hand them off. And I wanted to see them go well. If they didn't go well, it was very, very hard. But it, but if you have that end goal in mind, you realize we're building a company here, not just one relationship with one customer. So if things don't go perfect, again, if you build the right culture and the right kinds of things and infrastructure, then largely they will go pretty well. And I learned like the people I've hired are amazing and they do a better job than I do like 99% of the time. But occasionally when something slips up, you just have to take it and say, we're trying to build a business, not that one account, and it'll be okay. Really? Um, so those are huge, huge decisions, huge things, very important to do. Um, you know, when you said we're building a, a business, um, not just servicing one customer, and I was reminded of a, a book, I think you might have recommended it to me, uh, The E-Myth, which is a really, really good book if you're a building a small business or running Excellent one, book. just about building systems and processes that scale instead of just sort of responding to the here and now and, and running through the motions of servicing your, your current customers. But how do you balance that challenge early on if you only have three, four, five clients and a couple employees, like they are your world and you want your customer service to be top notch and you want to give them the best service you can, but at the same time, you want to know that they're not the end all and be all. And if that they, and if they leave because you're working on building a process that can service 10 times more people, that's okay. How do you sort of balance both of those things? Do you have to, do you have to build a wall? Do you have to have your employees focusing only on servicing the here and now and only sort of management team people thinking about the big vision? Uh, or can you keep both of those things in mind at once? That's a great way to do it. I think that's helpful if you can at all make it. So in the kind of the way I tried to go was that the people I hired, handled the processes that were in place. And if I was going to bend and do things I shouldn't, that was going to be on me, and then ultimately on the management team, you know, and then ultimately where no one was doing the bending and making sure we could, you know, again, if you're funding yourself on sales and things like that, you kind of need to keep the customers you have even more so than you do a little bit further down the road. So even if they're not a perfect fit yet, you may keep them. But the more you can build your teams around the scalable models, the quicker you'll get to that scaling if you do it, again, if you do it by funding yourself based on sales. Is there anything that you should not delegate as an entrepreneur? Ah, that's a great question. And people have different rules. I think you can delegate a lot. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, at some stage, even, you know, entrepreneurs will step out of being CEO and whatnot if their business really scales. So I think there's even, even, even some leadership and vision that you can ultimately delegate at the end of the day. But I think until you're pretty large, the entrepreneur or somebody on the founding team needs to set the vision and kind of set the tone for the culture. And again, that can evolve from the team in, in ways as well, but it has to be bigger than other individual team members. I think that is very important. What is setting... Outside of that, marketing, accounting, finance, you know, sales, all those things, you can delegate a lot of them. Find what you're really good at. Probably each business will have a core function that, that they'll delegate last. And that's because that's what the founder is naturally really good at. And, and that could be fine. But I think most things can actually be delegated outside of that real visionary stuff. What does setting the vision look like on the ground? Because it's such a large abstract thing, like set the vision. But it's not like every day you can physically stand before your employees or email them all and say, hey, guys, here's the vision. They'll, they'll get tired of it. It won't work. Like if you talk about it too much or hang vision posters up on the wall, how do you how do you sort of do that? How do you kind of. Like I know good companies basically embody the personality or the tone or the culture set by the founder often, but how do you make that happen? What's that look like in the day to day? Sure. So I think, I think you want to have some sense of purpose for why your business does what it does. So like in our case, our, 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 the, why we exist is to empower entrepreneurs. So there's some really big lofty objective that, that we're out achieving. And, and, and the more you can connect that to what each team member does every day, the better. So I tell my people, you know, hey, you empower 60 entrepreneurs every month who employ 2,000 employees and 
aggregate do a hundred million dollars of GDP in this country? You know, you you're doing bookkeeping or accounting, but you're empowering an entrepreneur and it's real. You can't be fake with this stuff. Right. So, so you set this big overall thing and then you have the culture that they're part of. So you're also part of this team, this company, this entity that's doing something cool in and of itself, that's growing, that's that's a good place to work, that's a fun place to come and hang out with your coworkers, that, that gets recognition sometimes locally or nationally or whatnot. So it's kind of two-pronged in terms of the overall vision and mission of what the service or product is all about, and then also being part of this team. You know, people love wearing their college team sweatshirts and things like that, but being associated with something within a company is also very valuable. So to me, the vision is kind of two-pronged in that way. Um, okay, so just a few more questions for you, and then we can wrap it up. So when it comes to growing a business, how much of it, I think there's this pressure, especially certainly if you're venture-backed, to grow really, really fast, but how much of success is just about having enough time to figure it out, to get traction, to, to see the industry changes, to let your, you know, your sales uh, work pay off, and, and on the flip side, if it's like, well, if I just survive a little longer, it will start to click. But at some point you need to know when to quit when it's not working. So how do you determine when you just need a little bit longer to prove it and when you just need to hang it up? Sure. So yeah, the, the Rocky kind of example is one I've always looked at. And again, when you, there are these types of businesses that just grow really fast and they're going to work or not. But a lot of businesses fall into this category of if they hang around, like Rocky, you hang in the rim, you're taking in the ring, you're taking a pounding, but you can always get that one shot in and still win. Or, you know, if you're just, if you stay in the fight, you don't get knocked out, there's a chance you can win it. Um, and, and that's very much can be the case for, for many, many businesses. Um, you just want to be sure it's, if we go back to that boxing analogy, you're keeping your eye out. You're looking for that. You know, that opportunity is going to come up. You're learning the market. You're learning your competition. You're keeping an eye on, okay, his, his left hand's dropping. I, I am, if I just hang in here, I'm going to be able to get a shot. You don't just cower in the corner and take a pounding. If you can't see anymore and you can't be strategic and you're just flailing, you know, maybe it's time to quit before you get a really bad injury. But if while you're taking that beating and you're not, you're not growing as fast as you want, you're not quite getting where you want, but you're taking this, this pounding, but you're keeping your eyes open, you're looking for that opportunity and you're ready to strike for it. And maybe you strike five, six, seven times, you know, maybe it's not the first time that you strike, th then you're okay. But at the moment where you're literally just kind of cowering, trying to keep from getting hurt worse is probably when you throw in the towel. It, it almost sounds like there's a couple questions to, to keep in the back of your mind. Like, okay, if I am really struggling, if a big break came, um, would I even be in a position to handle it and parlay it into sustained success? Yeah, if you're so beat up, your punch isn't even gonna pack any power. So you won't even get the knockout, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's probably time to hang it up. So it, that's a great, great, I love that. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to have one closing question for you, but before we do, um, we've been talking about your business, but just to give people an idea of where you're at with your business, uh, the success of it, the, the relative size and all that stuff. So you started as just you, you quit your job and took a ridiculous pay cut and had, you know, personal credit card debt using to get this thing off the ground. And this was what, eight years ago when it was just you and no revenue basically. Correct. And today, where are you now? Do you mind sharing with us your size and your revenue and things like that? Yeah. So, so we've grown nicely ever since then. Um, Ceterusinc.com uh, by the way, C-E-T-E-R-U-S.com. We've got, I'll just give you a couple numbers, but we, we take care of over 650 um, small businesses and nonprofits throughout the country. We've developed our own software that's really revolutionary in the uh, software as a service for accounting world. And we've grown, you know, the last few years we've grown really fast. And we're actually at that spot where there's 100% confidence in everything. And that is to me the part where the scalability really goes crazy. So again, always have that in mind. In the last year, it's really come to fruition. Um, the route we took was very much to grind it out and sell along the way and add people as we went. It was an okay path. I, I'd probably change a few things. I'd probably accelerate things a little quicker. Um, and, but, but ultimately, it was, it was a really good way to, to go where we're going. And I absolutely love being an entrepreneur and, and, and working with the company. And, and now you actually, despite what we talked about, you, you bootstrapped it the whole way. You had a couple uh, times where you did some SBA loans and, and smaller uh, debt financing, things like that. But you basically, 
funded it through sales for the first seven, eight years, but now you are going out and seeking equity investment. Is that right? Yes. So we're absolutely, we're at the spot where we're deeply considering that. And it's due to the fact we are, when you know for a fact that pouring the funding on it, like the sales model works, like we talked about earlier, I didn't yeah. know that early on. 20 sales guys, I didn't know what they would do. Today I do. Today we've figured out all the levers, we know exactly what to do, and we've developed software which makes your business much more scalable. In our case, just scaling a service was very hard. Converting to a software model that we kind of slid into a little bit about a year ago has made that very possible. So so absolutely, there's all those funding mechanisms are amazing. For us, it was a little bit of a journey to get to that spot where we could make a plan, we knew all the levers, the confidence in how they were gonna work was off the charts. So, so that is where we're at today. So I mean, let the me... difference is I wouldn't have been there eight years ago. I, I, either I'm not smart enough or the idea wasn't evolved enough or whatever, but I think a lot of businesses fall into that category. All right, so so leave us with a, a bomb of wisdom and truth that you can just drop drop on the listeners here. What are What is the biggest reason for entrepreneurial failure based on just, just your own observations? It doesn't have to be some foolproof thing. What do you think are the biggest reasons for failure and how can somebody avoid that? I really think entrepreneurial failure is, is almost non-existent. So to me, it's really, if you truly want to be an entrepreneur and you're willing to work hard, you will most likely succeed. It may take a long time. So failure to me is mostly a, a, a result of someone thinking they want to be an entrepreneur and they, maybe that's not really what they're cut out to do. Um, so, so the business oh, may, fail, may fail, but the entrepreneur, okay, yeah, go ahead. But the, the entrepreneur will ultimately end up being an entrepreneur in, in doing what they want. Because there's ideas, as amazing as they are, there's a million simple ideas that will be great businesses. Mm-hmm. And you'll learn along the way. So failing can learn, and, and, and you can ultimately always get to that spot where, where you can be a successful entrepreneur, I think, if that's what you really care about. But you don't have to. Like, again, if you really care about other things about life, you thought you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you realized that's just not for me. I like to be a part of something, part of something that's already big. I don't want to put in six years and have it maybe fail and have to start over. So there's a lot of reasons that that you could fail. But I think in general, somebody really is committed to it. There's not failure's not really in the cards. So the only way to fail as an entrepreneur is to think that you want to be an entrepreneur, but really you don't. So so right getting that, that self-discovery, figuring out your own sort of preferences and, and values is paramount, sounds like. And I've known some people that, that were very smart, started businesses, kind of hated it. You know, it failed in some way or another and, and they're working somewhere and they're like, that was just the wrong thing for me. Hmm. And, you know, it was, that's, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, so, but if you really are that entrepreneur, there's, you really shouldn't be anything standing in your way from having a successful life as an entrepreneur. You just may fail several times throughout the process. <laughs> Levi Morehouse, founder and CEO of Ceteris. Uh, com is their website. Also, my older brother. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thanks, bro. You bet.